right, here we go. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a wearisome, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Curse be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Good morning. Are y'all ready to talk about polluted food and animals that are blind and all that? Sounds, woo, get real excited about that. This is really important text, and you'll see that there's some great relevance here in regard to our faith. I want to kind of paint a picture for us and remind us of the pathway of how you arrive to the book of Malachi. Prior to Genesis 12, There was not a people group per se who had yet been called to be God's own people. Then in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram. He has left the Ur of the Chaldees. He's living in a place called Haran. And it's out of this void where God begins to make a chosen people from whom all the nations of the earth will eventually be blessed. So through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... This family grew to many sons, where in time they grew to not just one family, but to a huge family nation of millions of people, of 12 tribes that eventually would become an enslaved people. And as God would often do among them, He would raise up someone to be a deliverer, a savior, someone who would rescue them out of the place that they were at. So as they were in Egypt, Moses is risen up and Moses begins the process of 
speaking to Pharaoh and leading the people out of Egypt. And so as they leave their slavery and bondage and they journey toward the land that God had promised already to them, some pretty incredible, miraculous things happen. God opens up the Red Sea and they are able to walk through safely. The Egyptian army follows them. The water comes down and drowns their enemy. And as they're walking to the desert, God lovingly gave them His presence every day by a pillar of cloud in the day or, or a night or a pillar of fire by night. They received His word in the wilderness, the law that would set them apart from all the other nations. And yet as they traveled, they began to grumble about food and water, lack of comfort. They embraced eventually fear in regard to people that were living in the land and they were too big and there's no way that they could go in and take the land. And all through this time, they just continued to refuse to trust God and follow Him. So they were forced to walk in the desert for 40 years. After that rebellious generation died, the next generation entered the land through the leadership of Joshua. God had given the land. Now they were in the land. They had to do some battles to settle the land, but they've gone in and they have settled that. And so Joshua was key. During his lifetime, the nation walked with the Lord. But after Joshua died and his generation that knew Joshua, the next generation forgot about the stories of God and what God had done. And so they ignored his word and they chose to worship other gods. And in those days, God raised up judges and prophets to lead, to caution, and to encourage the people to walk with them and to return to Him in repentance so that times of refreshing could come and that they would walk away from these times of rebellion. And after the days of the judges, God raised up a king after His own heart who would usher fire, came to power. They were there as well. And then, but in time... They were able to go back, but before they were able to go back, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and the promised land, this great promise that God had given, and this this covenant that God had made with these people, they had consistently over and over decided to go their own way and to ignore God's heart and purposes for them. And so sadly, once again, at the end of the 70 years, God moves upon the heart of a king named Cyrus of Persia, and Judah comes back. God sent Zerubbabel to begin to rebuild the temple. Ezra was sent to call the people back to knowing and following the law, and then God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the broken walls that were surrounding Jerusalem. And as I said, sadly, once again, in spite of godly leaders, Judah chose to do its own thing and to go their own way. And so following their own hearts... And after the ways of the world being more a treasure for them, they walked away from God from the safe and secure path that is obedience and walking with the Lord. And at the ending of the Old Testament, as it arrives, which is the book of Malachi, one last time God sends forth another messenger to speak to them. His name is Malachi. His name means messenger. To remind them that God loved them. And that obedience to Him was critical and key. And that soon God would establish the Messiah would come and He would establish the kingdom for them. But repentance was needed once again. And as the Old Testament closes, the people's hearts are once again closed off to God. 
And after Malachi, there is almost 500 years, about 480 years of God being silent, of God sending no prophets anymore, and nobody listening, and nobody coming back to the Lord. So this book is really significant. It has tremendous relevance, you will see today, to what we are doing in the room this morning, gathering together as God's people to worship. And I know probably in the Old Testament, and I do know this in our generation, there are a lot of followers of God who don't think gathering on Sunday morning is an important piece of our lives. And, and it's, this is not my standard. This is the standard that's in the Bible. God built a tabernacle for the people to come to worship. Eventually, the temple was built. Eventually, there were local synagogues in the communities for people to come and worship. God has always called His people to gather together to worship. But when His people come to gather to worship, it's critical that they are doing what God has asked of them to do. In Malachi's generation, that was not the case. They were kind of doing their own thing. And they had walked away from God and it was kind of connected with the priest. And so as we come to Malachi 1, verse 6, Judah is not in a good place spiritually once again. They've not set up idols all over the land like had been the case in the past, but their worship was apathetic. And as the Lord looked all the way back through the history, all the way back to Genesis 12, where He began to do this work of calling a people this family that would eventually become a nation to be His unique people. All that God could see when He looked back was, I have loved you faithfully. And yet at the end of the Old Testament, Judah is looking back at their history from another perspective and they're saying, I don't see it, God. Because all we have had is trouble and heartache and war and loss of life and kingdom splitting. And they look back, but they... They, they made a great failure. And the failure was this. They looked back and said that God didn't love us because of all the trouble. Instead of looking back and going, the reason we had all that trouble was because of who? Themselves. They had chosen to go their own way and to walk away from the covenant of love that God had given to them. And so even in the moments of their history where God was disciplining them, it was always done out of great love. And so as we arrived last week at the end of the Old Testament in regard to writing with the book of Malachi, God makes one final declaration out loud to them. And it begins in in verse 1 of Malachi 1 to say to them, I love you. I love you. I care about you. I know what you have been like. I know the history. And I know how you see me now. But I want to remind you one more time, I love you. And this should get us excited. Our love to God ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's fiery hot. And sometimes it's just hard and it's cold. But His love never changes. And that's where our great comfort comes, is that He doesn't change. And we are only able to love Him because He has first loved us. And so God, through Malachi, one more time says... I want you to know that I love you. And now God in the text is going to deal with the priests, the leaders. The people have lots of issues too. But it 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 flows out of 
how the priests were leading. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning, if you're taking notes, is I want to talk for a moment about the disobedience of the priests, of the leaders. For as the leaders go so often, so go the people. So his voice in the text comes now to the priests to address their sinful actions. And as again, as leaders lead, sometimes the people will follow in regard to that. And if the leaders are not leading rightly, they will lead in the wrong direction. And so the priests, instead of communicating God's truth, instead of modeling what worship ought to look like, they felt that they could change things and do things in a different way. So God is going to rebuke the priests. He's going to charge them to say, this is not right, this needs to be addressed, and you need to get this together. And so because of the priest's failure, the people had lost the meaning of worship. Now I want to stop here for a moment to make sure that we get this. When we say the word worship in 2023 in Christian circles, just about every time we immediately first of all think of what? Singing. That is not the definition of worship. The definition of worship in the Bible means to prostrate yourself. It means to literally lay yourself down, to bow your entire life before the Lord. So is worship singing part of worship? Absolutely it is. But worship is much more than this. And the issue was is that no one was laying their life down, particularly the priests. And as people came to worship because nobody was laying their lives down, they were changing up what God required to begin to teach other things. And so there was a lostness on the worship in all of life. As they worked, as they came to the temple, all of this was gone. And so it is a dangerous place for God's people. When the leaders question God's truthful statements, Of these statements, he has spoken for their good to get their attention so that they would come back to him. And so God addresses the priest to say, you've got to deal with this. We've got to get this right. And because true biblical belief should have a strong influence upon our behavior and how we worship. So let's look at the second thing. There was a deep disconnect with the leadership. And I want you to look with me in verse 6. And we're going to deal with two things here in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God has two questions here. Where is my honor? And if I am a master, I am the Lord of the covenant. Where is my fear? Where is the fear of me? Says the Lord of hosts to you. By the way, Lord of hosts, anybody know what that means? It means Lord of the angel armies. This is who he is. He is the Lord of the hosts of the angel armies. And the Lord of the angel armies is saying, Oh, priests. And he tells them that this is what you're doing. You are despising my name, but you're questioning my judgment and what I'm saying to you. And you're saying back to me, Well, how have we done that? We have no idea what in the world you are talking about. So the priests were to do two main things. As we come to the book of Malachi that they were not doing. They were doing this, but they weren't living it. One was they were to call God their father. 
God had begun the nation. Again, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and he says, from you, there's going to come a family and all the nations of the earth, every nation, people group, every language, every tribe, there's going to be a blessing come to them, which is a promise of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who blesses all of the nations. And this would come from Abraham. So God starts this nation, starts this family. And so therefore he is the father. And so they would talk of God in regard to, you are our father. As a matter of fact, in the four gospels, the most favorite word that Jesus used was father in referring to God. He loved the word father, particularly in the gospel of John, that is used over and over. So the priests were saying, you're our father, but there was a disconnect in their behavior. So if you have a son in the room, not in the room today, but if you're in the room here and you have a son and your kid over and over says, hey, dad, papa, whatever you're called, I don't know what you're called, father, and they, they give you respect and name, and yet what they do over and over again is rebellion, there is a deep disconnect there. And so Malachi is sharing God's message and says this, if you're going to call me father, I want to remind you of what this looks like. A son honors and obeys the father. And yet the priests in Israel were not doing this at this particular point in time. So a son is to honor the father by being lovingly obedient to the father. The father is to model and to train the son to walk in righteousness. And the son honors and esteems the father by walking in a way where the godliness and reputation of the father is seen in the son, but reflects back to the father. And so, so God comes to the priest through Malachi and says, okay, you, you're continuing to call me father, but your actions and your words while, while they may sound correct, your actions show something completely different. First Samuel 2.30 says this, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, will be lightly esteemed. So God had called this nation to be His firstborn and He their loving Father and they rarely honored Him in their history in that way. So one, the priests were saying, you're our Father, but their actions weren't there. Secondly, they were calling God their Master, their Lord. You are the one. We are, we are yours. You are our Master, and, and as your people, we will follow you. We will walk in obedience. And yet, they had no fear of God. Let me talk about fear for a moment because we're going to spend uh, a bit of time talking about that off and on today. There is a fear of like being startled, afraid, shaking. Halloween's coming up. That kind of fear that's connected to that kind of aspect of things. And then there is another fear. It's called the fear of the Lord. And it is to have great honor and awe and respect for who God is. So here 
or the priest saying, you're our master, you're our Lord. And yet there was no awe, there was no honor, there was no bowing, there was no prostrating of themselves before God. So the son is to give honor to the father. A servant is to give honor to the master. And yet all through this, this was not taking place. So the priests in the text today had lost their fear of the Lord. They no longer saw the Lord as one who is to be respected or to be in awe of. It's kind of the way some people see Jesus today, where he is just this timid, weak, maybe uninterested, or just a a friend, just a buddy, a close friend who never calls us out, lets us continue to live however we want to live. Or some people see Jesus as this magic genie in the sky, do some things, rub the Bible, pray some prayers, and God's just going to, here, let me give you what you want. Some read the scriptures today, and they see that they, they see these words like Malachi 1.1, I love you. I have loved you since I called you to be my people. And they say this back to God. Gosh, he must be lonely. Look how much he needs me. He can't stop saying, come back in relationship to me. So God must really need us. And I tell you, if this is the kind of God that you know, or you think that is, rather than him, be, him being the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, then that God is not worthy of worship. He is not worthy of that. It is why so many, I think, are no longer interested in worshiping and following him. They don't know the God of the Bible, who is, who is unbelievably loving. And it's terrifying at the same time that there should be an awe and respect and reverence for who he is. You know, in our culture today, he is no longer seen as an all-consuming fire who is to be known in great reverence and fear. The heartless worship of Malachi's day and ours has unfortunately become too much of the norm around us. 400 years earlier from Malachi, the prophet Isaiah wrote of God's word, wrote God's words down for his generation. Listen to these words. This is Isaiah 29, 13, and 14. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is just a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I'm going to do something wonderful. And what God's going to do something wonderful here is not blessings from heaven. Kind of it's going to sound like it here. Listen to what he says. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder. But this is what he's going to do. He wasn't going to raise them up. He wasn't going to send a savior at that point in time to awaken them in Isaiah's generation. This is what the wonder that God was going to do. He said, in the wisdom of their wise men, I'm going to make it perish. 
and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. See, this text is significant in Isaiah 29. He is describing a people who say, I know the word, I know God. But their lives and their worship revealed it was emptiness and they did not know him. It was, it was a heartless worship. So God says, I'm going to do something unique in that generation. And this is what God was going to do. Those who had the, the platforms to speak and who had the power to speak, God, and, and were giving advice that was just man-centered, no longer connected to the law of God and worshiping God authentically, God says this, I'm going to hush them up. And then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this wonder. I'm going to show that the land has no discernment anymore. Except with the remnant of the people that were going to walk with the Lord. And so he says, I'm going to do something unique in their midst of their so-called progressivism. Since you are smarter than I, I'm going to do a wonder above all kind of wonders. And I am going to tame the wisdom of the wise men of the day and bring them to a place where what they say perishes and that there will be an inability to be able to discern the truth that will be hidden from them. Now listen to this. This describes our generation. As you survey the landscape today around us in regard to followers of Jesus, and you look at those in our culture who the culture would say, this is the wisest, this is the smartest, this is the most influential. If you will listen to what they say, it is absolute silliness. What is being espoused by the people in power and and those who have great influence that are not walking with God. And because the church has become so much like the culture in our day and time, there's little difference between the two. And so is it any wonder that a discernment has been lost in our current culture? Again, just listen to those in our culture who have the loudest voices. Listen to what they're saying and speaking. They offer foolish solutions that cannot work to the brokenness of our day. And if the people of God have lost the fear and awe of God, and we are no longer living in awe of His glory, then His people have substituted the fear of Him for a cheaper version view of who He is. And if Christians think that we can just live however we want to live and God's just going to be okay with all of that, He's not concerned at all, then again, we have a God that we have belittled and made very, very small who is not worthy of worship. But when God has a people that love Him, that prostrate their lives and that come into a room and they gather on a Wednesday night or gather in life group or they sit at the kitchen table or they gather with other believers in their workplace and they study the Word, they encourage each other and there's a worship and there's a heart for God, then God will be at work in those moments blessing that remnant work in the world. But if all we're going to do is have a half-hearted worship of God, then we're going to have much of what we see 
in our world today. And some of us may not realize why we feel that the culture and the world is so disjointed right now. And we feel out of place living in it. It rests on this reality. Somewhere back in the day, probably early 60s, particularly 60s generation for sure. There was a checking out of of God's majesty and God's glory. And the culture made a huge shift at that particular point in time. And the church has lost its influence upon the culture. And by the way, I, I don't know if we go back. I know God can awaken the church. But the culture's taken over. When I, when I was in high school, which I'm very young, right? I'm very young, which was not very long ago. When I was in high school, you know what a school district wouldn't do? You know what a local little league team or basketball league wouldn't do? They would never schedule something on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights. Never would they do it. And the church lost its influence upon the culture, and the culture began to say, we're going to take over every day, and we're going to demand upon you that you bow to us. And so Christians had to make decisions. Do I go to church on Sunday and gather with God's people? Or do I choose this other thing that the culture is now telling me that I've got to fit into their schedule about certain things? And all of that had to do with losing the awe and respect among the people of God for the holiness of who He is. This is why Israel, throughout their history, have you read the Old Testament? It is a tragedy. It's it's horrible to read that God had, of His own, decided, I'm making you my very own. And they consistently, over and over, very rarely in their history, did they say to Him, we are yours. And we will lay our lives down before you, no matter what. We are yours. You are our God. We are your people. We are with you. Their history was complaining, grumbling, fighting, rebelling, setting up idols in the land that people made in some place, coming and setting them, building a building around them. And instead of going to Jerusalem to the temple, spending time worshiping things that had been set up on a pole or had been put into a little house throughout the land. And so God is, at the end of the Old Testament, is coming and He's saying this. He's saying, priests, I've I've got something to say to you and it's really, really strong and this is what I've got to say to you. You have led the people and you have modeled for the people not what true worship is. You have gone your way and you have done your own thing. So there is a deep disconnect. This leads us to the third thing that led to their despising of God's name. And so the last part of verse 6 just says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, by doing this, by calling God your father, but not honoring him, by calling God your master, but not submitting to him, by doing that, you have despised his name. But then they had a question. They always, again, this was their practice. God speaks and they're like, oh God, I don't agree with that. I don't like what you have to say. I want to remind you and I this morning of the great hope if you're part of the remnant of God and your longing is obedience with him. 
He promises in Isaiah 55 that when the word of the Lord goes out, it's going to accomplish its purpose. And I tell you, I stand in the hope of that truth, that as the rains come down from heaven and water the earth, and it produces, so will his word that goes forth, that God will bring about that. But I tell you what God will not bring about is that when he speaks his word and his people say, no, I will not obey that. No, God, I'm questioning that. And so God makes an honest assessment here. It says, listen, you're despising my name. And they're like, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? So I told you that I told you before, my dad was my high school principal. He was my dad and he was my principal. So in 1979, I was a freshman in high school and I was spending the night at my friend Billy Kurzmarski's house. I lived in a community in Waco called Woodway. Um, Next to it was a place called Hewitt. Our girlfriends lived in Hewitt. We lived in Woodway. And so we decided, let's sneak out and let's just go. We We had no plans of doing anything bad. Bad. But let's just go and hang out during the middle of the night. So we're hiding behind trees, walking out there. And my dad is the high school principal, and we get right to the high school, and a police car pulls out. So we run real fast. There's some columns in the driveway. We're hiding behind the columns. And we're thinking, oh, we're smart. They didn't see us. I'm an athlete. I'm fast. It was too quick. Well, he pulled into that horseshoe driveway and knew that we couldn't run fast enough and got out of his car. And I decided at that particular point in time, I'm busted. And so your pastor got put in the back of a police car at age 15. So they took my friend home first. His parents came down and got him. Then they took me home. And I could hear through the thing, the phone, they, they had a call from the... This was, this was pre-cell phone days and all that kind of stuff. They had a call from the police headquarters there in Woodway. And I could hear my dad over the phone say, well, y'all can keep him. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 will you please come down and get me, please? And a few minutes later, my dad came down and he got me. And as soon as I walked out of the car and I saw his face, I was reminded of something he told me over and over growing up. We, Waco was kind of a big place, but the section where we lived was more small townish. And my dad used to tell me all the time, because of my role, you carry my name wherever you go. And so what you do, what people see, what you say, what you participate in, you are carrying my name. And as I looked at my dad on the driveway on, in front of our house, I remembered those words. And it had a profound effect upon me. I didn't become a believer until two years later. But I can tell you what I didn't do. I didn't do that again. Because I saw the hurt on my dad's face that he had to come down at about 3.30 in the morning to get me out of the back of a police car. And I want to say this to you and I this morning to illustrate 
Every follower of Jesus, we bear the mark and the name of Jesus. We are called little Christ. And so God in the text is saying this, it matters how you live. It matters how you worship. You carry my name. Priests, you have despised my name. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they didn't listen to him and they went their own way and they despised his name. And that brings us to the, to the reality. How were they defiling God's name and despising his name? So look at verse 7 and 8. So here's what would happen. Your family came to the temple. You came, maybe you lived in Bethlehem. Maybe you lived in Nazareth. Maybe you lived in someplace else in Israel. You came to the temple and you would bring an animal and you would come to the temple and you would give the animal to the priest. And the priest had the responsibility of making the sacrifice at different parts and time of the year, particular sacrifices. And so here's what the priest began to do. They knew what the word said. Here's what the word said. Leviticus twenty two twenty one. When anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish with it. Animals that were blind that just had one eye or they were disabled or they were mutilated or they had a discharge or an itch or scabs You shall not offer that animal to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So here's what began to happen. People would come to the temple and they would bring, instead of the best sheep from the flock, they would bring the worst sheep that maybe had three legs or three legs and a half of a fourth leg. It was blind didn't have an ear, whatever the case may be, and they would bring it to the temple for sacrifice, and the priest should have said immediately what? No, no, you can't offer that. And here's what the priest did. Okay. And they would take that animal, and they would bring it in, and they would lay it on the altar, and they would do the work of making sacrifice of the animal. Now, part of the sacrifice of the animal, watch this, was the priests got portions of that for themselves so that they could eat and they could take care of their needs. They began to complain that the food that they were eating that was being sacrificed wasn't good enough and they were blaming God for it when it was their fault. They could have accepted the right animal that would be given and the food would be good connected to that animal. It wouldn't be sick. It wouldn't be diseased. And so they're allowing all of this to happen and take place. And they're blaming God for it. What are you talking about, God? How have we despised your name? How are we polluting the table, the altar, the food that's there? What are you talking about? And this is what they were consistently doing. And you see, the disrespect of God's call to faithful service is a disrespect of God. And that's why God is calling them out. And so they began to twist the Scriptures. They began to lessen the Scriptures. The words on the page were, well, that's not really what God meant them to be. I can kind of do my own thing about worship. 
and to everyone's detriment, it began to affect the land because very few people were bringing a sacrifice of worship that God had instructed in his word to honor him. And when you have a land where the spiritual leaders of the land or of a place are okay about lessening things or okay about, oh, we don't really have to do that. I know the word says that, but that takes more time. That's this, this, and that. Then you will eventually have a disaster on your hands, which was Judah. That's where things were. And so how does this apply to you and I? Well, last week, I went to a new restaurant in Frisco. And they are truly doing something unique, new, that no other place I've ever heard of is doing. Now, the best part of this place is that they have really, really good food. And it's really light on your pocketbook. It's called surplus. This is what this place is called. And here's what they do. It's amazing. When someone is through eating, a special server comes to the table and they pick up the plate and they take it back into the kitchen where there's a special place inside the kitchen in there where they look and examine the food that's on the plate that hasn't been touched and they pull it off the plate and put it on another plate to get it ready to go back out into the restaurant to serve someone else. You've all been there. You've been at restaurants. And you walk by and you're like, look at that food that's been wasted. Particularly take a kid to a Chinese buffet and they just pile that stuff up and they don't eat any of it. So this place has decided we serve high quality food that some of it is on plates in front of people, but they don't touch it. And instead of letting it go to waste. Now, sometimes at this restaurant, you have to wait a little bit longer for more food to kind of gather and so they can gather on your plate and actually come back out to you. But I didn't mind it. It was absolutely amazing. So I'm going to go this week. Anybody want to go with me? Why is nobody raising their hand? Now, that's a made-up story. But you get the point. You better put your, your seatbelt on. Do we do that to God Sunday after Sunday in this building? We just bring to God our leftovers. And that's what we offer to Him. And I'm afraid that sometimes that is the case. And when we do that, we are defiling the altar of God and the worship of God. And there's no fear of God. And I tell you, as long as you and I feel entitled... We will never be thankful for anything that God offers. We will just cling to what we think is ours. This is what it sounds like. My time is mine. So I will go to church when there's nothing else on the schedule. My money is mine. Don't ask me to give. My money is mine. I can do what I want. My car is mine. 
My sexual life is mine. Don't tell me that I have to have sexual ethics. And on and on and on it goes. And I want to tell you, when God's people think this way, then we are defiling the altar of worship. Again, what is worship? It's not singing. It is prostrating our lives, falling our lives down before God and saying, all of you is what I want, but God, I wrestle with that, but I want all of you. So God, come to me as I lay before you and be my God and empower me. And I tell you, the priest took all the things that they were required to get and yet they felt it was restrictive and instead of seeing it as a blessed invitation that they could serve God in this way, they had lost their fear of Him and they were totally okay with anybody bringing whatever kind of animal they wanted to bring when they knew the Word says that's not how you worship. But they were okay with it. And their vision of God had become so small and when this happens... We fill that void instead of with the grandeur of Christ and the glory of who He is. We fill it with ourselves. What an awful exchange that is. That He's not everything for us. And I tell you, you know this, I know this. We are so small and weak on our own. We know that is true. So why is it that we organize our life to do anything else but remain connected to the source of life, Jesus Christ himself. So I want to get real personal and we're going to move forward here. What kind of offering are you making this morning in this room? What kind of offering am I making this morning? Did we come into the room today, take our seat, sang, prayed, said Psalm 119 out loud. Was it pure? Was it devoted? Or was it just like the priests who were offering animal sacrifices that had one eye or three legs? And I'll be honest with you. We are never going to come into this place perfect, have it all together. And when we don't have it all together, then we need to come in and just be honest before God. God, I, I don't feel it today. I don't have it today. But I know, I know, I know, I know, I know your word says that you're everything that your word says you are. And so will you just help me to honor you in these moments of worship? Well, here's the issue. Verse 9 says... This is Malachi speaking. Most of this book is God speaking. Malachi says, Seek the Lord, the favor of God in verse 9. That God would be gracious to us. And then Malachi asks a question. With such a gift of lame animals being offered in worship, how are you, why are you expecting God to do some kind of blessing and bring restoration to the land again? And so here's what we've got to do. We've got to, we've got to call out to God in purity. There's got to be confession. So now entreat the favor of God that He would be gracious to us once again as He has been in the past. But if all you're going to continue to do <coughs> is bring half-hearted worship, go to a restaurant in Frisco waiting for the leftover foods that had been on the plates of people 
to come back out so that you can eat that. God's not going to honor that. But God's going to bless you with the kind of food and and life and, and faith in Him that is amazing. So Malachi says there's a desperate need that we've got to seek the favor of God once again. Would you agree that we need that today in the church culture here in America? There is a desperate need to seek Him again. So desperate is this need that look at verse 10. Oh, this is God speaking now. Oh, that there were just one priest among you who would shut the doors in the temple that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. That is powerful. Do you get the point? Watch this. Could there just be one? Could there just be one in the temple, one priest who would say, Men, look at the animals. Look what we're doing. We're making mockery of what God instructed us to do. This should be a joy for us to make these sacrifices. Do you remember when they settled the land? The tribes all got places. The tribe of Levi did not get any land. You know what they got? They got the blessing to be called of God to serve in the tabernacle and the temple. And yet at the end of the Old Testament, they were like, I hate this job. I'm tired of it. Over and over and over, I've got to take an animal in there and I've got to kill it. I've got to bleed it out. I've got to skin it. I've got to do this. And they're just like, I'm tired. I'm tired of doing this. And God says, I just wish that there was one priest, just one priest, that would say, let's just shut the temple down until we get worship right. That's what verse 10 says. You know how tragic it was among the priesthood? There wasn't one who said, let's shut the place down until we get this right. They just continued and had been doing this and will continue to do this for about 200 more years. Eventually, there's a little bit of a movement with a group of people called the Maccabees, this family, when the Greeks come in. But for the most part, things remained a mess. So I think for your life and in my life today, if our worship of God, not our singing, our worship of God, laying our lives out before God is a mess right now, and we're offering half-hearted worship to Him, there's a decisive decision to be made. You know what that may mean? In just a moment, we're going to sing again. Maybe you don't sing at all. Or I don't sing. We don't. We quit saying words we don't mean. We quit making sacrifices of worship that aren't deep within our heart. And here's why this is so important. It's because the divine name of God deserves to be honored here and in all the nations. So verse 11 God speaks, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. This is kind of prophetic word of the future that when the millennial kingdom comes, Christ will be honored everywhere. But for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations 
says the Lord of hosts. In verse 11, God mentions his name three times. Do you think he's serious about worship? Yes. He's so serious that when we sing, it's authentic. It's heartfelt. It's, it's, it, it means something. We recognize the glory of who he is. And so he says, listen, my name will be great among the nations. And every place there's worship and incense is going to go up in my name. And my name will be great among the nations. We pray in his name. We go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name in which uh, given under he- in heaven or under the earth except the name of Jesus for salvation. Paul was told that he would carry the name and he would suffer for the name in Acts chapter 9. And in Hebrews 13.15 it says, Let us therefore, when we gather together, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So the issue was, Israel was to be a light to the nations. Were they? No, they were not. People from the outside looking in at Israel had seen, those people, yeah, their God has done great things. We know of that. But the people were not engaging anymore and connecting with them. And so lastly this morning, I'll just read 12 through 14 again. That there cannot be a defiling of his name before the nations. So again, he's speaking to the priest. He says in verse 12, but if you profane it, my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. It's kind of like this. Day after day, all day long, killing animals, cleaning the altar, another sacrifice, cleaning the altar, another sacrifice. When you snort, this word here means, it means, oh, it's repulsive. It stinks. It smells. Instead of, again, looking at God has instructed us as, as, as I sacrifice this animal to be a picture of what my worship is to be like to him, laid down, giving my, giving my life, and this will honor him. Repulsive this is. So they say, what a, in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Curse be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And he closes with this. For I am a great king, says the Lord of angel armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. So there is for us in our lives to be a deep reverence for God. Do you get that today? It's pretty clear in this. And it's easy for us who've grown up in the church to come in here on a Sunday morning and just play the game. We've learned how to do this. Oh, this is where I close my eyes. This is where I lift my hands. This is where I move a little bit. Or we come in and just never a connection. There's never a heart and passion for the glory of who he is. 
And I want to remind you, it's not the outward demonstration that determines whether worship is happens. I could take you to some churches today that it, it's, in, it's all in the name of Jesus, and there's craziness going on inside that building. It's chaotic. It's not in order. So it's not, are we demonstrative? But it's, is our heart recognizing that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is present? And He has called me to be in relationship with Him. And when we see that and recognize that, there is a hunger and a heart to worship Him and to fear Him in the right kind of way. I'm going to quickly give four verses up here. So Addison, could you put the first one up there? Here's one, this is Proverbs 1.7 about fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning point of wisdom. Being in awe of God, recognizing who He is, that's where it starts. And then look what it says there. But here's what fools do. They despise wisdom and they're not teachable. They're not willing to listen. Put the next one up there, please, Addison. Psalm 19. It keeps us in His righteousness. The fear of the Lord does. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So this awe of God and recognizing who He is brings about a holiness in our lives and a a working in our lives. And this endures, it says, forever that God will bring this about. Here's the third one. Just after the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses said to the people in Exodus 20.20, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that you may fear Him, be in awe of Him, reverence Him, and that the fear of Him may remain with you for this purpose, that you will not sin. That when we honor God in that way, and we recognize His holiness and the glory of who He is, there's just something in us that wants to not bow in and give in to sin. Lastly, it keeps us from living trying to please people. Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. I'm going to close with a quote here. I love Charles Spurgeon. He was amazing. I can't wait to meet a lot of people, Bible people. I also can't wait to wait to meet people three or 400 years ago and get to worship Jesus with them. I want you to listen to this. This is important. And we'll finish with this. You look around at our culture today and it's hard to see where any kind of honor is given. You, you teachers, school teachers, you know about this. If you coach, um, if you're an employer and you, you just, just all around us, we just don't see a lot of honor anymore in our culture. Policemen are not honored anymore. People in authority, it's been lost. But I want to specifically address something else. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, the fear of the Lord is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, 
it chases all other fears before it. Let me say it one more time. The fear of the Lord is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. And here's what happens. When we fear God, we will not fear people. The fear of God, and when we see the fullness of who Christ is, it chases away all of those things that seem to dominate our lives. Pleasing others, anxiety, fear of the future, lack of uncertainty of financial stability, sleeplessness. The fear of God drives these away. And Judah was a mess as there was no honor in the land. There was no fear of the lion of Judah. And when the leaders in the church no longer have the honor and the fear of the Lord as their priority, then here's what's going to happen in the broader culture. The line just gets pushed wider and wider and wider. And so it's hard to pull it back and rein it in. So I make, I make no pretense today that I'm a, I'm, I'm a biblical person. And I believe that God's word is true. I believe these words on this page are everything that I need for life and godliness, that he has done the work. It, it reveals who he is. It calls me to make decisions about family, about money, about time, about loving my wife. All of those things, the scripture speaks about that. But the foundation and the point this morning is we can continue to do this and we will, we're going to be in here next Sunday at 10 a.m. But the point this morning is will next Sunday morning at 10 a.m. be different than this morning was? Will there be an aspect for us that we come in recognizing I can't just sing songs. I can't just say words, but my heart, my life has got to be engaged with God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.